Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Double X Gab Fest for Thursday, May 24th, the White Lady Tears Edition. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate, and here in the DC studio with me is Hannah Rosen, a host of NPR's Invisibilia. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Christina. Welcome to the Slate studio. It's your first time here. It is. Welcome to the Double X Gab Fest. <laughs> it's your first time hosting. I'm so excited. And in New York, uh, in Slate's New York studio, we have, for the first time on the podcast, Anna Holmes, who you might know as the founder of Jezebel. She's currently at Topic. And welcome, Anna. We're so happy to have you. Um, hi. I'm uh, thrilled to be here as well. I, I kind of wish I was in the same room as you guys. <laughs> um, but I, I am very happy to be here, and hopefully I can I can still make a contribution, even though I'm some hundred miles away <laughs> from you guys. I, we're sure you will. And, you know, usually Hannah's the one alone in a studio. And so <laughs> I know she's really happy when she gets to be here talking to somebody in person. I know it can be isolating, but just look through the window into the comforting eyes of June and Daniel uh, anytime you feel scared. Okay. Yeah, well, I won't feel scared. I might just feel awkward. But. <laughs> <laughs> one small order of business before we get into our topics for today. We are still looking for new names for our podcast, uh, Double X, uh, as as I think Hannah mentioned in last week's podcast. Uh, sounds a little bit like porn. Um, we're trying to move away from a, a biological essentialism uh, idea of gender. So if you've got ideas, please tweet us or go onto our Facebook page or email us at doublexgabfest at slate.com. Oh, and by the way, listeners, you have sent some awesome names so far. Some of you are pun masters. <laughs> <laughs> some of you are just, you know, some of you are just like got the feminist history down. And so you're sending us names from the past. It's pretty cool. I feel like we're going to find a gem in there really soon. Keep them coming. Yeah. And as you probably realized, since you just listened to a Double X GabFest episode last week, the show is now weekly. We're so excited to have a bunch of new voices coming in, including mine. And we're ready to get into our topics. First up, we're going to be talking about Miss America. Uh, after Several leaders of the organization, including the CEO and president, stepped down in the wake of an email scandal. It's being led for the first time by two women. Can that redeem it? And will it? And should it? Should we care? Secondly, we have The Handmaid's Tale Season 2. Is it a razor-sharp dystopian commentary or is it torture porn? And how much gratuitous suffering can we be expected to witness to participate in discussions of feminism? And thirdly, we have the white Oakland woman who appeared in a viral video calling the cops on a couple of black people having a cookout. Now she's a meme. Then in our Slate Plus segment, we'll talk about the royal wedding, Meghan Markle's dress, and whether it's sexist to read deeply into that dress. If you're not a Slate Plus member yet, you can start your free two-week trial by visiting slate.com slash xxplus. All right. First up, we have Miss America. So for the first time in the pageant's history, the two parts of the organization, so there's the pageant and then there's the foundation, will be led entirely by women. 
I was shocked, honestly, to find out that they had never been led entirely by women before. Um, the two leaders coming in also happen to be former Miss Americas. Uh, Hannah, why don't you let us know what's going on there? Yeah, so actually it started with an email scandal where the head of the institution, whose name is Sam Haskell, it was it was leaked by Huffington Post that he had sent a bunch of emails to other people in the organization, including the person writing the copy for the show, that were kind of obsessive about the formers. I mean, you really have to be deep into Miss America, and I, I'm hoping some of our listeners are to understand why the formers... <laughs> The former Miss America. The former the Miss formers. Americas are setting this off. And he was like, those little cunts, basically. It was kind of, you know, the kind of joking you'd get between two people in an organization, but really mean. Um, and, it, and, it, and, and the initial one that got a lot of attention was about something very small, which is that on the show, they call them forever Miss Americas. And he wanted them to be called former Miss Americas. And then it devolved to those cunts, basically. That was, that was, that was like, that was the That's like of the events. end point of any conversation between two people discussing, two men discussing women behind women's backs. It'll end up in those cunts. Yeah. So, (laughs) yeah. So um, I think it was weird for us, Anna, maybe you'll agree to like just have to just think about the image of a bunch of guys discussing the former Miss Americas. Just that whole image was slightly wrong. Like that was just wrong to contemplate that vision. Uh, Yeah. But 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 men talk about women like that all the time. So I guess I guess I'm not surprised um, whether it's, you know, administrators or officials in the Miss America organization or two guys down the hall uh, at a workplace. Um, I, I think I, I, I'm trying not to be surprised by the ways in which men talk about women when women aren't around. Although I have to say there were women involved in this scandal, yeah. too. Like in the background, there were women, Tammy Haddad among them, uh, who, who were just kind of egging these guys on. So this wasn't like a woman. This wasn't like a women are clean, men are dirty kind of scandal. I mean, it went always. I think for me, part of the not being surprised, which I agree with you, Anna, when I first read these, I was like, well, yeah. Yes, of course, you know, these are like men in power who are presiding over this organization whose entire purpose is to judge women based on their bodies and, you know, sexual attractiveness. And so I wasn't surprised to see that they say, you know, so and so is so fat, you can't even recognize her anymore. This is one of the formers. Uh, Or, you know, I think we're the only two men who haven't slept with her. I think she's like, (laughs) you should get a blood test if you've slept with her. Like this... It, it seemed like just uh, a more vulgar version of what the Miss America competition is kind of already saying to us. And, you know, I don't think if you looked in my emails, I'm sure that I have said things that I'm not proud of. And I, I wouldn't want Huffington Post to leak them. But I don't <laughs> think I've called women cunts. You know, I think that's the difference between what some of the what what a what a normal look person's bad email is and maybe why this person's bad email ended in him stepping down from the organization. It's, it's interesting because like the C word, as as I like to call it when I reference it, which is rarely, um, <laughs> uh, it doesn't t- to me feel like like the, the, the worst offense. But I'm also not someone who it, I don't like the word cunt as, as applied to women, but it doesn't bother me, I think, as much as it bothers other people, perhaps because I've been around... Um, Folks for whom it is it, it's less of a gendered insult, namely the British and Australians, who <laughs> often use it to to like rib one another, um, like man to man, um, and, and and I think 
yeah, I don't think the word cunt is what bugs me so much as the as the judgment about sexuality. Um, you know, the fact that like many men or society in general, uh, women are are celebrated for having a certain a certain sexuality and appearance of fertility, but that can very very quickly go south when they actually exercise that sexuality. So, you know, they're supposed to be sexy, but if they have sex with people, <laughs> mm-hmm. then you have to get a blood test. Right. And there was that whole big scandal where, you know, I think a, a former Miss America was uh, de- decrowned or dethroned because she had posed for Penthouse or Hustler. Uh, and they recently, actually one of the men who just stepped down, recently apologized to her to say, you know, you, you should have... Uh, reaped all of the benefits of the, of the Miss America position, and we're sorry that we made you feel bad about that. Meanwhile, behind the scenes in this email, they're saying not only insulting the women's appearances and and their perceptions of their sexuality, but also discussing maybe sicking a personal uh, private investigator on her to see, you know, uh, these people who are criticizing the organization, like, let's see if we can try to silence them. For me, one of the questions is, how are you supposed to protest this? Like, for some reason, I had an easier time figuring out the cheerleaders. Like, we've recently realized all the nasty stuff that people are doing uh, to cheerleaders, how little they get paid, how, you know, how kind of athletic their particular feats are, how hard it is to be a cheerleader. I had an easier time with that scandal that popped up. But this one is like, what what are... Are we supposed to be defending these women? Are we supposed to be like despising the women? Are we supposed to despise the entire institution? I just have a hard time knowing like how I, what what is my pose towards the towards the whole enterprise? You know, is right. it like a patriarchal trap, or you know how how am I how am I supposed to like? I don't feel that great that there's two women in charge because right. that doesn't do much for me. Like I'm glad that this was exposed. I think the exposure of the emails and the way the thing runs is it will be good. For for the organization, like the fact that two women are running it, I don't know. It depends on the two women and what they decide to do. Right? Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think that putting women in positions of power in in, in an organization like that um, necessarily uh, absolves the organization of it of its history or 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 its present and 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 what it means. And and I, I know that you know the party line of the Miss America organization is that it's a scholarship organization and I understand that they give scholarships but nobody thinks of Miss of the Miss America pageant as being a scholarship pageant it is absolutely very much about women's appearance and poise and you know to a lesser degree their ability to answer somewhat tough questions <laughs> under pressure while wearing a an evening gown in, in in front of a in front of a, a an audience of millions. I guess the I guess the thing about the Miss America pageant that I feel and Hannah, you know, when you're saying that you're not sure how to how to approach it, how to feel, I, I can tell you that I I I feel similar to similarly to you, but I think ultimately it's so irrelevant of an institution. Um, it feels so irrelevant and, and has for so long, but particularly in this political and cultural environment, it really does feel like a relic and i don't know that 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 
by adding two female officials, it's going to feel any more modern or contemporary. It might have just run its course. Yeah. See, that's that's. I think that's where I landed. I got stuck for some reason on the swimsuit competition yeah. <laughs> and this idea that they were wearing swimsuits but not swimming. Like for some reason, <laughs> that got stuck in my head. Yeah, like, it's, I was they, like, they want that, them to wear underwear, but they can't wear underwear. Yeah. So they wear bathing suits. So I was like, that's right. whack. Like the whole idea of a swimsuit competition for people who were doing nothing athletic but just parading around in the swimsuits, <laughs> which really yeah. is in the origin of the competition. There's a whole history of Miss America of like, what swimsuits are they allowed to wear? The one-piece bodysuit. You know, the, the swimsuit right. actually... I remember <laughs> watching the first woman who wore boy shorts Yeah, and everyone was like, oh, this gender subversion happening on the stage <laughs> of Miss America. <laughs> you know, and also like, so yeah, swimsuits are, are really normally meant for... for um, Athletics, if you want to call it that, or at least at least movement of the body in in a in a body of water, and I don't know that most of those swimsuits could hold up to like a breaststroke, yeah, um, or a wave. <laughs> well, well, can I just ask on on this question of like, should we just throw it away? Because I was like, a, a, I, that's where I landed at the end of reading. I was like, what do I forget it? Just this is ridiculous. This is just like sanctioned ogling on television of women wearing swimsuits for no reason. But can let me just put this out there. We had a different reaction to the princess situation, the duchess situation. Like that's an institution that we shouldn't care about either. Why do we care who's the princess? Like why does that matter to us? Why did it this become this big kind of progressive rallying moment that Meghan Markle was the princess and here she is in her dress? And we're going to talk about that a little bit in the Slate Plus. But just to compare that to what you just said about the Miss America competition, like isn't why are those two moments different? These are both completely outdated institutions, a princess and a swimsuit competition that technically we should we should really not care about but we probably had different reactions to those two things yeah and i think that the i'm not sure miss america is irrelevant i mean i think it's probably irrelevant to the three people who are speaking into microphones right now and maybe to some of the people who maybe our listeners or, or maybe our listeners have different perspectives please write in but i I mean, when I was doing some reading about Miss America in um, preparation for this, I discovered that the CEO who stepped down is sort of lauded as making Miss America relevant again, that it used to be on basic cable. Now it's on ABC. More people are watching it. I think there is a segment of the country or maybe a segment of young women who do watch Miss America. I mean, certainly there are people who do pageants. Uh, Some of them are in my family. Um, And I think that there it might seem significant for those people when Miss America makes a small change. Like I was trying to imagine what could make me like Miss America or think that Miss America has changed enough to make it, you know, acceptable. Like what if they got rid of the swimsuit competition? Are the other parts of the competition relevant and worthwhile? What if two women fell in love and then eloped (laughs) from the stage. I hadn't thought of that scenario, but I'll consider it. But then it kind of came down to like, well, what is this competition? What is it measuring? And it's just, it's like, what, best woman? Like, you know, you, you can walk straight. They all have the same kind of body. Like, you can't say it's not a beauty pageant because the talent portion, like, you would never measure a saxophonist 
next to an Irish dancer next right. to whatever else they do. But the question – your question is like is inching forward enough or do we need to subvert – like is it fun to subvert – there was something about Meghan Markle that felt subversive. Like it just felt subversive to kind of Because she was black? Yeah, because yeah. she was black. <laughs> yeah. and pre- there was just something about it. She's American. She's divorced. All the things that people talked about felt – it felt a little more than inching forward. It wasn't like a tiny little step. It just felt very different. So is there any – equivalent of that where you could not just inch forward by two, putting two women in charge, but actually subvert the Miss America competition in some ways. I don't know. The, the thing about, so when I say that I think the Miss America pageant is irrelevant, um, I'm not saying people don't watch it. And like even if there was increased viewership you know, year over year, I would still say that it's irrelevant. And the reason that I say that it's irrelevant is because it doesn't have any effect that I can gather on on the larger culture. It, it It is part of the culture and has been part of American culture for some time, but I don't think it has any any meaningful effect on it. I don't think that – I think in many ways it might be reactive to changing American culture and politics as opposed to leading it. And like that – you know, I guess I wouldn't expect the Miss America pageant to like lead the culture, <laughs> but but that's what I mean when I say irrelevant. And so, you know, I, I guess when I'm I'm trying to compare it to, let's say, the wedding of Meghan Markle to Prince Harry, um, that relationship, that marriage, and and then that wedding, the ceremony itself, felt like it was pushing a culture forward as opposed to reacting to it. So when I say it's irrelevant, it doesn't mean that no one watches it. It just means that it doesn't have any actual influence as far as I can tell. I think that's a good yardstick. Like, does it push something forward that wasn't there before? Or is Miss America, like with Miss America, you just feel like they're catching up to 2018 a little bit. They're catching up to like 2002. Yeah. Or like (laughs) 1972. Like if this was the first time a woman had been a CEO of an organization and it was the Miss America organization. Right. Right. That would have been something. But yeah, it makes me sad to see that this is what it took for them to make women heads of this organization that it feels to me like a lot of times when women get put into positions of power at big institutions it's because a man just did something wrong and usually it is in a misogynist way so like we've seen women become presidents of universities or interim presidents of universities after former presidents were deposed because of sexual assault scandals i'm i you know it used to bug me and now i'm like fine if this is what it takes fine like well (laughs) this is the same thing great bring it on they did the same thing advice like they 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 brought on they brought on a, a female president who was Nancy Dubuque, who was at A and E, probably in large. I mean, she's very talented. So this is not this is not denigrating her um, her expertise or her resume. But like, I, I think it was it was pointed that they brought her on after all of the bad bad press that Vice was getting about its office culture and the ways in which women there were being treated. Um, yeah, I, I guess I also just feel cynical about the the Miss America bringing on women thing because ultimately. It is a very um, regressive organization or, or represents something very regressive and hoary and old, but also because they brought on Gretchen Carlson. And I, mm-hmm. I, 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 you know, I'm sorry. I, I realize that Gretchen Carlson is in some quarters considered to be a heroine for speaking out against the sexual harassment that she faced at, at Fox News. And I'm going to try and separate that out a little bit because I'm not casting aspersions on whether she experienced sexual harassment. But, you know, she also contributed to 
or has contributed to a really, really, really ugly climate um, by working at Fox News and the things that she said and and, rep- and quote unquote reported. And it's really hard for me to um, look at her as some sort of savior or uh, um, women's rights advocate, which she's been kind of touted as being mm-hmm. um, after the, the years and years and years in which she spent spewing either falsehoods or hatred on one of the most, I think, destructive media companies that we've had in some time. Yeah, that's a great point. And she, yeah, I had forgotten that she was a former Miss America. And now she's, she was one of the people that they had, uh, that the board really didn't like. And now she's, I think, the head of the board. So listeners, what do you think? Can the institution be redeemed with two women at the head? Let us know. Email doublexgabfest at slate.com. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. You have quite an adventure ahead of you. And we are going to make sure you get absolutely everything you need. Plenty of rest and healthy food, fresh air exercise. You'll just have to be my very good girl. You can do that, can't you? I will try it, Lydia. Good. All right. Next, we are talking about The Handmaid's Tale. Season one of the show aired in 2017. It was an adaptation of Margaret Atwood's 1985 novel by the same name, depicting an America where infertility is rampant due to ecological ruin and women who have been proven biologically capable of having children are more or less kidnapped and commissioned into sexual servitude to the male leaders of this Christian society that takes the commands of the Bible quite literally. It's funny. I thought this would be like season one, a 10-episode season, but apparently they're going to 13. I know. Me. Oh, we have so <laughs> many left. There's so yeah. much torture left. There's so much left, which yeah, which means there's so much torture left. Um, and, and this week sees the release of episode six of season two of The Handmaid's Tale. I, I want to like... Um, be honest here, I only just started catching up or rather, rather watching season two like three days ago. So I'm halfway through episode oh four. Oh my God, God bless um, you. <laughs> and, you know, it is the sort of show that like I can binge because I want to know what happens next. But it, it you know, I, I do agree with a, a number of, of writers and thinkers who've been publishing pieces lately that it is a difficult season to watch. I mean, maybe I'm forgetting how bad the first season was bad in terms of like its intensity. Um, but it, yeah, it, I'm finding it like a lot of other people to be difficult to watch. I, I, I'm not refusing to watch it. I'm going to watch it all the way through, but uh, there is a discussion going on um, among, as I said, writers and critics, mostly female <laughs> about um, the, what at least Willa Paskin uh, of Slate and Lisa Miller at the cut were calling torture porn. So, 
first question for you guys is, are you watching it? Are you caught up? Do you Are you finding it as difficult as I am to watch it? <laughs> Hannah's seething over here. Hannah, Hell come. yes. <laughs> no, I have, I have, so I've thought about it a lot. I, it is definitely, I mean, the torture porn, man, like ap- the first episode, yes. I mean, just, let's just list what happens. You've got, you know, you've got near hanging, which, which results in someone peeing in their pants. And, and, and listeners, I should say, we are going to talk in some specifics about at least the first two or three episodes. So if you don't like that idea, skip this portion of the podcast, go watch the first three episodes and you can come back to it. We'll try not to get too specific about how it wraps up mid-season, let's say this week. We won't go all the way to this week in case you're not caught up. Um, but there, there's a lot of, you know, they're in the gulag. I, I feel like that's not spoiling <laughs> too much. They're like they're sort of mucking in the toxic waste. You know, there's near hanging. There's like witnessing of hanging. I mean, it's just, and and, and, and also there's like hopefulness that's kind of crushed. So, um, so, so they're really you really do watch, particularly June slash Alfred, go through some serious trials. And I think what it's done for some feminist critics is ask this question, which I'll bounce back to you guys: Is you thought you were like committing a virtuous feminist act watching season one of The Handmaid's Tale, you're like, oh, this is a Trump protest and the timing couldn't be better. And this is about oppression of women. And it's so timely. And suddenly in season two, you're like, hmm, is this a feminist? <laughs> like, what? what is this here? Like, what am I watching? Why is she, you know, there's kind of sex mixed in with the yeah. torture at one point. That was the only scene that I would have cut out personally. I have a theory. The sex I, scene? I, yeah, I have kind of a defense for the torture porn, which I'll get to later. But like, it, I, I do, that was the one that was a, a little kind of titillate, like I don't, titillation and the and the torture together was was not working for me. But um, but so you, you now had to question as a viewer, is it a virtuous act to be sitting here watching this, or is this just unpleasant for no reason at all, and I'm not doing anything virtuous for the world? Don't you think that's the switch that happened for yeah, people? Yeah, I think that's a smart way of putting it. And the feeling that I get while watching it, and I have you know, been watching it mostly for my job more so than any actual <laughs> enjoyment I'm getting out of it, but um, it feels to me like how I felt during the last season of Breaking Bad, where everyone just kept getting worse. Every epi- I dreaded watching every episode because I knew that there would be some... You you know, inhumane treatment of a character that I loved or, you know, liked. Uh, but this, unlike Breaking Bad, this show doesn't have the strong characters, I think, to make that sort of like the character arc that makes that sort of payoff worthwhile or mean something. This is just watching, you know, Elizabeth Moss, uh, I think is a great actress. I think in this show, it's just a lot of like lingering close-ups of her wounds and her face in this sort <laughs> of like, you know, one note, like muted strength. I mean, I know she's supposed to be some sort of feminist hero and she's like more or less part of this little like growing resistance. But uh, I feel like there's nothing. What's the strength in just like watching harm come onto women over and over and over again? It feels like, I, I know how bad Gilead is. I know how bad patriarchy is. I know that there's torture going on. I don't need to see like every iteration of how the people of Gilead and the writers of this show can dream up to torture women. <laughs> but is it see, see for me, it isn't that it shows torture and it isn't it isn't that maybe that it shows a lot of torture or violence. I, I, I think I think there there are times in which it, it feels forced into a narrative and you know let's be clear with season two they're creating a new narrative like they're they're not they're not 
um, following the plot of the book anymore. They've 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 left that behind. They left that behind with season one. Um, so it, it there, there there's there's something that's kind of cheesy about it that that I find distur it's disturbing to watch it, but it's but but it's more like eye rolly than it for me than it is. Um, I can't bear to look. Uh, <laughs> and, and and I'd say the same thing about like the sex scene, like like the particular. I, I don't know what episode it was. Maybe it was episode two or episode three when they're in the Boston Globe office. Um, I don't think that's a spoiler. Which is like, a slaughterhouse, just... which has been turned into a slaughterhouse. It's not like a newsroom anymore. Right, <laughs> right. But, but 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 that that just seemed over the top, and I just didn't buy it. Like I just didn't buy it. And I and I, and, I, and I guess I what I don't buy, I don't buy some of the. Um, acts of violence committed against the handmaids just because they seem over the top in a very arbitrary way that doesn't feel authentic to me. Um, even though I'm, you know, as a viewer, experiencing a world and a narrative at this point that, you know, who am I to say whether, whether it's authentic or not? Like, it's, it's, it's not, as I said, it's not, it's not following the book anymore and, and they're trying to put us into a certain world. So I don't know. I, I, I guess, I guess I just feel like there's a lot of, it, 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 there's a lot of titillation that, that that maybe maybe what they're trying to do is is Game of Thronesify <laughs> the Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. I see what you mean. I think that's exactly right. So 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 one part of it is just like ugh, this is horrible. But another reaction is is a little more superficial, which is just or a little more surfacey, which is like it's just feels circular. We've kind of know about Aunt Lydia. We know about oppression. We've already gone through that in season one. So when you're running me through that train a second time, like then then why are you doing it? And what is this about? And I just feel like I don't want to it feels not credible. Yeah, I think to Anna's point, it feels like the it's, you know, violence for the sake of the violence, like in in lieu of any interesting or meaningful, you know, plot point they're just putting a a piece of violence in there to make you feel something can i make my defense now i'm gonna try it by you guys okay okay you can reject it but here's my defense Uh, so i i was questioning myself and thinking okay well what about shows where they put men through this kind of torture like the revenant or the last temptation of christ right these like big epic hero struggles where it's like, it's insane, right? He's like dragged through the freezing cold and eaten <laughs> by whatever the hell animal. I think it was a bear or whatever, or like the last Grizzly temptation bear, yeah. of Christ. Not or how about eaten just by a bear, but raped by a <laughs> raped bear. Raped by a bear. And then there's like, you know, Jesus Christ, the last temptation of Christ. And everyone's like, whoa, that movie was so beloved. And nobody thinks of it in that same way, the way we are thinking of this, that it's like torture porn, right? It just is. That's what the hero has to go through, these kind of extremities to get out to the other side. So, okay. If this digression is boring, you can cut it later. <laughs> but like, the, the reason I got started down this role is because a listener named Robert Hill sent me an Ursula Le Guin essay called wow. The Carrier Bag of Fiction. And she's making the distinction between men's fiction, which is about heroes. It's like focused mm-hmm. on the hero and what the hero goes through. And kind of, she says that she and Margaret Atwood are not writing science fiction the way men write science fiction. They're writing about things that are happening now and communities of oppression. And there isn't a kind of singular focus on a singular hero. There's a focus on a community. And it occurs to me that in season two, they've kind of moved her partly because of her acting is so good. And that's basically I hope they're paying her a billion dollars because the camera's on her face like 99 percent of the time. And it's like she's 10 different people. So she could get she should get paid like 10 different people. Um, But (laughs) but she's become this kind of singular heroine. And so I was trying to embrace it 
as that, as like this is like a woman being put through the physical trials or like the wrestlers, another example, like men get put through physical trials and they're turning her as opposed to the community into a very singular heroine going through really brutal trials and I assume is going to come out the other end. What do you guys think? I think when you are talking about what, you know, this isn't really a hero narrative, but um, when you talk about men going through sort of the same gratuitous violence that gets worse and worse, I thought of Theon Greyjoy in uh, Game of Thrones. Yeah. I don't know if you guys watched that show. Um, there was like, I think, several episodes where he's just on, um, what do you call it, when he's like nailed to an X, basically, and they're uh, crucified? cutting off pieces of his body. And I mean, uh, I feel like there are parts of that show where men go through the same sorts of trials that women are going through in Handmaid's Tale. But as you said, it's different when it's not being cast as a sort of a, a patriarchal violence or or a violence of, of oppression against a certain community or identity where this show really has marketed itself as a feminist text. And now and women are taking it at that. Women are dressing up as handmaids to protest laws against reproductive rights. Uh, and it's sad to watch something that has been sort of claimed as a rallying cry turn into something that it's not really clear that it's going to end up rallying or that we have to endure all of this suffering to get to a point where we realize maybe Offred is a hero, let's mm-hmm. say. I mean, I my, my assumption is that Offred will... will um Call her we'll June, not, ladies. Will not just will not just survive, but like, but you know, but 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 um, but be made but thrive. Yeah, but thrive and <laughs> be made and you know, come out the other side, so to speak. Um, interestingly, I don't think Game of Thrones always does that. I think that like part of what makes Game of Thrones interesting to some people is that um, characters are killed off or people are tortured, and then there's no resolution. Like then they just disappear, kind of like real life. Um, <laughs> where, whereas my assumption is that the writers are going to write, you know, something um, re- redemptive for for Elizabeth Moss's character. Um, but it does feel, and I feel this way when I watch Game of Thrones, and that's why I'm making the comparison. That they're that the writers slash showrunner white man by the way um are inserting um sex scenes or scenes of violence almost as if there's some sort of um of of, of rule book that you need to follow when when writing and producing hour long dramas that mean you know that it requires a certain number of sex scenes a certain number of breasts being seen <laughs> a certain number of you know um torture scenes or, or or outright murders like oftentimes game of thrones feels somewhat formulaic but like that like <laughs> i can't tell you how many times you know i'm watching game of thrones and i'm like okay there are the breasts because they always have to have <laughs> naked breasts and it's hbo right so they have to they have to you know satisfy a whole bunch of audiences i do feel sometimes like the, like the handmaid's tale or rather i'm not sure whether what feels like an uncontrolled explosion of violence in this season in particular is a political choice so much as like a programming one like a cynical programming one on the part of the producers and the showrunner and the and 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 hulu itself like it's a way to grab attention and, and up the stakes um and you know, the cynical part of me thinks that that's why they're doing it. Yeah. And that also brings up something that I've been thinking about, which is how what do men get out of watching this show? I know that we have some uh, male listeners, quite a few of them who email us. So I'm really excited to hear what they have to say about this, because I 
I'm mostly thinking of it from uh, a woman's point of view as a woman. But I do wonder when I watch this stuff, like, what do men think of this? Does this seem like a really radical uh, critique of the patriarchy to them? And I think uh, to your point about, you know, the the male creators of these shows who are maybe, you know, thinking more about a multi-gendered audience, Lisa Miller pointed out and, um, in the cut, which I thought was a great point, that uh, you know, Bruce Miller is the one who created this show, a man. And not that men can't tell women's stories, but I do think that they're – I have a higher bar for them when they do or that they're, they need to have uh, uh, even more talent than, than maybe a woman would to be able to authentically tell a woman's story. And I think – I wonder that if – if I feel a little bit uh, cynical about this season of Handmaid's Tale, because I know that not just Bruce Miller, but, um, you know, the Hulu leadership, which Lisa Miller pointed out is majority male, is is profiting off of this sort of prurient interest in women's suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the, Lisa Miller, um, her piece, I agreed agreed was with, with, with a lot of it and, and felt challenged by a lot of it in a good way. But there was one thing she said that I didn't quite get. She She's she's kind of asking rhetorical questions. At, at one point, she says, um, it, it, "It's feminist to watch women enslaved, degraded, beaten, amputated, and raped. How exactly am I participating in a women's revolution by sitting on my comfy, cozy bed and consuming this?" And my response would be, "No one said you were pers- participating in right, a women's revolution by watching not. The Handmaid's Tale. Like no one said that. Um, I, I and 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 if that's the expectation, then I think maybe you're expecting too much out of television, which is you know." Granted, very, 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 very good nowadays, and has been for, for for many years. But I don't think that anyone is is um is 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 <laughs> thinking that 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 they're that they're engaging in actual politics by turning on um a Hulu show. Yeah, I noticed that sentence too because it made me think. Oh, wait, we fooled ourselves in season one. It's not that we're doing that. It's just that we told ourselves that story about season one, but that story is not true. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I think that's all the time we have for The Handmaid's Tale. Listeners, if you've watched it or if you'd like to watch it or if now we've convinced you not to watch it, please email us. Okay. Our last topic of the episode before our Slate Plus segment is White Lady in Oakland. So uh, about a month ago now, April 29th, a white woman ran across a few black people barbecuing in a park around uh, Lake Merritt in Oakland. They had a folding table. There were a couple of chairs like you might have at a soccer game. Um, There was a cooler and a portable charcoal grill. Apparently, there are six barbecuing areas around Lake Merritt. Three are designated for charcoal grill. These men were allegedly in a non-charcoal area. So it was a picnic, beautiful day. There's a a cell phone video that a woman, Michelle Snyder, took. Two hours ago, someone illegally grilling in the park with a charcoal grill. They're not supposed to. I was waiting there for a response because I was told they're coming. <laughs> After two hours, I guessed you called back the non-emergency warning. And then in turn, these people started coming up and harassing me, physically pushing me. I did not physically push her. She stole my card, and I wanted it back. I, I did not tell her. I have witnesses. The video went viral. It's about 25 minutes long. It's been viewed more than 2 million times as of this taping. Um, so the, the white woman's on the phone with the cops, or at least she's holding the phone to her ear as if she's on the phone with the cops, but she's definitely called the cops. And when the video starts, she's already been waiting around for two hours for the cops to come. At some point, she starts to realize, you know, I'm being taped. Maybe she starts to feel like she's in over her head, but she really sticks it out uh, as uh, Michelle Snyder, 
hero follows her with the phone. Uh, her husband was barbecuing, by the way, which is, uh, I guess, why she showed up with her phone. Um, Michelle Snyder followed her. The, finally, the cops come. The white woman breaks down and cries. Now the video has gone viral. And now the white woman has become a meme. She's got a cell phone. She's got wraparound sunglasses. She's got <laughs> righteous indignation for days. Um, and now she's been photoshopped onto a bus with Rosa Parks. And she's on the Lincoln Memorial with Martin Luther King Jr. She's outside the Oval Office peeking in the window, keeping an eye on the Obamas. She's on the set of Soul Train. She's uh, in <laughs> the Wakanda. Memes, the memes are really so, good. They're so, so, so good. So the meme, the, the, the meme is basically that this white woman is watching black people. She's uh, watching yeah. and reporting on black people. That gotcha. every, anytime yeah. black people are doing something... Uh, innocuous or fun or important, she's there to watch them and call the cops on them. Yeah, and okay. like I guess it's like the the vibe around her is not like dangerous. It's not like a white cop vibe. It's like um, it's like a, it's like a, a tattletale. Like it's like a rule stickler vibe. Like right. mm-hmm. sort of principal vibe. It's an Aunt know? Lydia. Yeah, it's like <laughs> Aunt Lydia. It's like, but not even da- just like I'm going to call you out because this isn't the charcoal. I mean, the whole conversation was. Like, it's not the charcoal section. It's right. The, and she's just kind of sticking it out. But there isn't that much, like, heat for a long time. Like, she's just kind of, like, patiently, like, it's not a charcoal area. You right. Know? Um, and then it starts to get, I think, as the woman who filmed the video followed her, it becomes more like, I'm scared because a black woman is walking next to me. Yeah. Then, she, then it really looks like she's scared something's going to happen to her. Like, she kind of, st- her voice starts quivering. She starts crying. The video gets kind of awkward. Verilyn's coming to the mic. She was the woman that was videotaping her. Wasn't she white? Yeah, I thought Whoa. maybe I read that too. Yeah, I didn't I know that. Yeah, she that was too. white woman. I assume so it's she really was about black. A, a white ally. Oh shit! Should I correct that, or is this is my no, discovery I, I a part of this you, segment? I loved it. Yeah, <laughs> I really loved that she thought she was black because it does for me. If if she was black, that scenario wouldn't have went. It probably would have been more of a violent situation, right? Whoa, interesting. That totally what do you changes. Mean? What? Why would it have been violent if it had been a black woman? Well, when the police got there, I think there was something about that there was a white woman there videotaping, advocating for those black men, that if it was a black woman doing that, the suspicion would have been on that black woman. I believe Mm -hmm. the suspicion would have been on that black woman as well. So much, And that white woman's tears would have been that much more violent. Wow, that really changes the way I interpret it. Because I thought when they were walking away together, I really thought the, you know, the meme lady was sort of like, oh, my God, a black woman's following me because everyone else in the video besides the the white the besides the meme lady was black. And so I kind of assumed that they were all. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, OK, before we get to the white ally, can we just discuss like what was I I was like fix, fixated on the scene itself of like what was like why it it why it it catches fire is just like that's a scene that's replicatable in so many cities. Like the guy who was barbecuing said he'd been barbecuing for forty some years, and <laughs> there was her sense was that she owned that park, that that was her park, that she controlled. I mean, that's what was weird about it. It was like she was the park police or mm-hmm. something, enforcing the rules of that park, which he had been coming to for forty two years. So, and there wasn't any danger. It wasn't nighttime. It was just like nothing was going on. They weren't even littering, you know? Yeah. It was just a weird just like I own this space moment, which I was thinking like, oh, is that like before we just like 
rat on that white woman, that's just gentrification. Like a lot of liberal white people moving into a neighborhood and paying money to be in that neighborhood and kind of reading the zoning laws and doing whatever they're doing, feel ownership over neighborhoods that other people have lived in who are not white, right? It's not just like, that's why this video to me has some juice because it's like going on all over America. Yeah. And and of course, the, you know, white people calling the cops on black people for like just being for in living. public space. Yeah. And yeah. this sort of like inherent suspicion of black people existing in public. Like and I think the, one of the reasons the video went viral besides what you just said, Hannah, is because it's there's been a, a chain of events that have gotten national press. So there was the two black men in Philly where the Starbucks barista called the cops because they were sitting at a table waiting for their friends. There were three black uh, Airbnb guests who were checking out of a spot. They had suitcases. Neighbors called the cops because they assumed they were robbing the place. Um, there was the black graduate student at Yale who was sleeping in a common room and a, a white student called the cops on her. It's like the impulse is to call the cops when you're the hall monitor, when you, a, you're a white person appointing yourself the sort of hall monitor of the space that you think is yours. The first instinct is to call the police. I mean, th- this lady was just, uh, and, and I, I believe she was maybe identified as some sort of academic at Stanford, but like she's a busybody and nosy and... um yeah, and 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 obviously has a sense of entitlement to um, a public space um, in a in a city in Northern California that is historically been African American um, and is being gentrified very 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 rapidly. Um, like, I guess I guess my impression watching that video was that she was pathetic, um, as as well as my finding what she did ridiculous. Um, there was something very pathetic about it, um, and 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 then her deployment of the tears later when she is filmed alongside, I guess, a deputy's van or, or or vehicle trying to tell him what's been going on and claiming that she was being harassed. Um, it's just it's it's something that I think a lot of people are familiar with or have seen before, um, in their own in their own personal lives, and you know that's. Part of the reason why the meme uh, of her being placed in different situations in African American history, um, it's, you know, it is so funny. It's it's both making fun of her, but it's also making fun of um, just the idea overall that uh, that black people are constantly on or, or being surveilled, even in their even in their most innocuous, um, like banal moments, like barbecuing. Yeah. Yeah. What do you make of the white ally situation? Oof. Does that move you in any way, either of you? I mean, I feel like the one of the good things that could come from this video and the memification is I guess there's like two models for white people in it. It's like you don't want to you are realizing how silly you look when you see a meme of this woman, you know, standing outside the Oval Office peeking in on Barack and Michelle Obama hugging. You know, you realize how stupid you look. This woman looks insane. Anyone who watches this video, I mean, it's it's absurd that she would call the police on people she's, barbecuing. She's stuck around apparently for 90 minutes. I right. Mean, and that's like even 90 minutes to two hours. Like <laughs> just like she had nothing better to do than to tattle on people who I guess were not barbecuing in the correct spot around. <laughs> Lake Merritt. Okay. But like, you know, like, is it worth calling the police? And I think the one thing we haven't brought up here that, that's been brought up, you know, by um, a lot of other people in, in stories about this is that it's a very dangerous thing to call the police um, on 
African-American people like that. Like, like she was not obvious. She was obviously totally ignorant of or, or didn't care about the, the peril she was actually putting those two gentlemen in by calling the police because of the ways that, that the police interact with African-Americans, particularly African-American men and, and the history of police violence. Like she was she, it, it, it was it was more, I guess, than her just being a busybody and a tattletale, but she was you know, potentially putting people in, in, in danger. Yeah. And I think I believe that there's no way that you can be in America right now and not be aware of that conversation that's going on or 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 that calling the police, especially when you're calling them on black people, could escalate the situation into violence and harm could come to those people, even if they're just barbecuing in the incorrect spot or with the incorrect fuel. But I think the... Uh, the interesting part of the video, one of the more interesting parts of the video to me was when she, the police, when she's talking to the police on her phone, she, they ask for her race to identify her. And she says, my race doesn't matter. When literally <laughs> the police are going to have to come and find you. Like, but now you're realizing that what you're doing ha- has racist implications. And so you don't want to admit that you're white. So she, I think she knew exactly what she was doing. And either was trying to make a point. I mean, even if you are identify as like right wing and and you're not sort of paying attention to these conversations in progressive circles, like the conservative media is talking about it just as much just from the other perspective. So I think she knew exactly what was happening there. All right. Should we talk about the. The white ally or how much time do we have left in Verilyn? I think we're. Yeah. Should we talk about the. Like white white lady tears. I like you to talk about the white lady tears. <laughs> Seeing her cry and be the victim in that moment, it was very painful for me to watch. Do you want to say something about it? Well, I mean, there's this. I mean, I know weaponized white tears is a term that I think maybe sometimes gets overused on Twitter, but I think like that, like the idea that you can both be the aggressor and then like it's that moment in get out right at the end when after all the things that she's done she's brought this man there she's like trying to hypnotize him and then because she saw the police car coming she can play the victim at that moment it's just like a card that white women have that black women or any other women don't have particularly in America and so to see it even on that basic level when literally all I was trying to do was barbecue and have a good time felt violent yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, like the the, the white lady tears um, th- thing. As I, I agree with you, Verilyn, that it can be overused um, a, a, in a way that sometimes makes me a little bit uncomfortable. But it, but the but the thing is, is that you know a lot of racialized violence against African Americans, particularly African American men, has been in the defense of white women and white lady tears. So like that's a certain historical context that I think is we we have to mention. Um, you know. I, whether or not she was consciously deploying her tears to to like get out of the situation, whether she thought I'm gonna you know start crying now, I don't think that's how it works. <laughs> I think I, I I think I I believe that her tears were legitimate in the sense that she really felt upset and started crying. That they weren't as they didn't necessarily have to be as manipulative as we may think that they are. But 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 by definition, they then become manipulative, whether or not she's deploying them on purpose or. Or, or not. Also, it's more than about just that moment. It's like 
why was she crying? She's crying because she's a little bit scared and uncomfortable. Why did she call? Like, let's just say she's genuinely scared and uncomfortable, not like faking scared and uncomfortable. Why is she scared and uncomfortable? Because because in her visual field of what she considers her home and her nice, clean park, there are black people barbecuing. Like, that's the reason that she called the police in the first place is just like rid my visual space of these black people. <laughs> people barbecuing, which I'm reading a great book about space and race and how our enforcement of space is by a guy. You read so many good books. I know. I didn't want to bring it up because it's too academic, but it's a wonderful book by this guy, Ryan Enos, and it's about how our conceptions of space, and he does a lot of great experiments that kind of fuck with liberals about their Mm -hmm. sense of space, and particularly in liberal cities, is this kind of engine that's driving racism. Mm -hmm. And I thought of that when I was watching this. I was like, oh, she's crying because she's uncomfortable. That's why she called the police in the first place. And all this gentrification of these nice cities that we're doing is becoming like another kind of, like another wave in motivation of racism. It's just like, get it out of my visual field because it makes me uncomfortable and it makes me want to cry. So Could it also also be that she was crying because she was embarrassed? Yeah, that's I think true. that was that's part of true. it. She realizes she's being videotaped and everyone and, you know, the woman, Michelle Snyder, the white ally in this situation, as Marilyn <laughs> informed me, um, was, you know, making it very clear that, oh, you're doing this because of race. I think she started to realize how it looked and what she was actually doing. Or, you know, but she also still she stuck it out for more than two hours until she actually found a police officer. Like she it seemed like really thought that she was that these people were going to get in trouble with the police officer and that that was the, you know, correct law enforcement body. Not even the Parks and Rec Department. Like, you know, maybe (laughs) file a report on the Parks and Rec Department website if you're so concerned. I'm sure there were. Yeah, I'm sure there were Parks and Rec people who were around there. I mean, like most most public parks that have have. uh, um, you know, city park workers that that are nearby doing stuff. I mean, it should have it should have you know it it should have made an impression on her that the cops didn't come for two hours. Now, in other situations, <laughs> in other situations, cops don't always come, and it's actually like really, really, really bad. But like, perhaps that should have been a clue that like this was not at the top of their list. Yeah. Um, to, when a forest fire didn't start, when no one got hurt, and, right. and they were doing it barbecuing for two hours and the cops didn't come, perhaps. Yeah. 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 But you're right, Anna. She was probably, like, it probably dawned on her if she is a reasonably intelligent person, oh my God, like, <laughs> this is, this yeah. is going to go viral and my life is going to be over, which is exactly what happened. Yeah. <laughs> All right, listeners, if you've seen any other good memes featuring this Oakland woman, or if you have any other thoughts about this situation in the video, please send us an email. We're really looking forward to hearing what you guys have to say about this. Now it's time for our recommendations. Hannah, since you reminded me that this was our next segment, why don't you go first? (laughs) Yes. Okay. So I'm not sure if this is a recommendation. I do this sometimes because I just, I want to talk about it on a future podcast. And so I want to cue in our listeners to pay attention. Uh, This whole area of my favorite murder. I picked up Michelle McNamara's book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark. She's the late wife of uh, comedian Patton Oswalt, who wrote the book about the Golden State Killer. It was all over the news about a month ago. 
this kind of um, this kind of giant like like comfort culture that's developed and my favorite murders, you know, of the top 10 podcasts all the time has millions and millions of listeners. And I am just trying to get my head around what this phenomenon is and is about and the kind of comfort that people are getting off of dissecting in minute detail the details of serial killers who have stalked women and whether it's like okay and ethical to do it. I just am, am my brain is on it. And so I'm asking our listeners to listen to My Favorite Murder, maybe pick up Michelle McNamara's book, like just kind of dive into that obsession if, if you're not already there. Um, and uh, so we can talk about it in a future episode. Ooh, that sounds like a good recommendation. Anna, what do you have for us? <laughs> My recommendation is so dumb. That's um, the, but the best recommendation. Yeah, dumb no, is really, fine. Usually mine are dumb. <laughs> no, I just it's got really, this in my head. It's really dumb and it's really not smart at all. But the, here's the thing. Um, my day job takes up so much of my emotional and mental energy that when I am quote unquote relaxing on the weekend, um, I'm either, I guess in you know, the case of this past weekend, catching up on the handmaid's tale, or I'm trying to like read things that that are not about politics or or anything heavy at all. And so a book that I picked up, which I've been meaning to read for a couple of years, um, and finally started reading on Sunday is and this is for the cat ladies in the in the audience um a book called cat sense <laughs> which apparently was like a bestseller and, and and really explains you know the the how how cats think operate or at least what we know of of, of how cats think and operate and the reason that i picked it up was number one because it was not going to be about trump or reproductive rights or anything like that but i also have two new cats um oh, so it felt like but, <laughs> but i felt but i i, I do think like i am learning a lot not just about um, one of the most popular animals in the world, but about human beings, too. So um, that's my recommendation. If you don't like cats, don't pick it up. <laughs> uh, but if you do or think you might, you should. Wait, Anna, can we talk about cats on one episode? Because I'm looking at Please. Cat Sense now. I'm just Please. I've had cats for so many years and I only appreciate them now. Like they're not spiritually uh, really? mine. They're like spiritually belong to other people in my family. And I'm like, fine. So just what now, happened? one of them has befriended me. Aww. My daughter, when she was, you know, little, was like, mm, kitty kin. And I was like, sure, because you do things for your kids when they're little and you don't really think about them. And so there they are. They're like, you know, they're like furniture in my house. Um, they don't bother me. They don't turn me on. I'm like a dog person. But one of them has started to befriend me. We have two because my husband is away a lot. So now she she's like my friend. And I'm and you can't just like ignore a creature that comes up on you every single <laughs> you just can't. It's mean. It feels mean after a while. So I'm it like, is mean. <laughs> okay, I will look you in yeah. the eye. I will do what you want. I will look you in the eye. And after looking a creature in the eye for like months, the creature Aww. becomes your friend yeah. but i just don't know what to do with the cat or anything i just don't have any oh. innate cat cattiness in me so let's I have a whole discussion about it that'll okay. be a really fun <laughs> yes. podcast okay i would like to recommend a podcast that i just started listening to this weekend i was on a little road trip to philly um i started listening to query cameron esposito's podcast uh she interviews a different lgbtq person every episode it's kind of a straightforward interview show it's. I think you, whether you enjoy this or not will depend on your capacity to enjoy uh, earnestness and sincerity. It is an incredibly earnest and sincere show, which I love because I'm uh, an like, inherently cynical person. Um, Cameron Esposito is super disarming and warm and uh, gets her interviewees to be incredibly comfortable. And it feels like she's like a fan of every single person that she interviews. So 
Recently, she did, um, she interviewed Roxanne Gay. She's done Clea Duvall, who's a personal favorite, Lena Waithe. Uh, she interviewed her spouse who about uh, their decision to start using non-binary pronouns, which was a really interesting conversation. And they're both comedians. Cameron and her spouse are both comedians. And so their conversation was really funny and intimate. Um, and I feel like sometimes conversations about sexuality, it's hard to bring nuance to them uh, because it feels like the entire weight of the community and its politics are resting on your shoulders. And I feel like the show does a reasonably good job of uh, still bringing, you know, p- personal differences of opinion into it. Um, there's actually a disclaimer at the top of the show that says, like, this show is about individual experience. Sometimes people will use words and phrases that don't feel right to you, and that's okay. Oh, we should do that. Mm-hmm. I like that. That is such a good um, idea. And the, the, it's like this is, you know, that's part of the show. That's part of why we have oh, this show. that's so nice. And I, at first when I heard it, I like, my eyes rolled completely out of my head. But then I was like, you know what, that's, that's, I feel like that puts people in a good mindset for discussing some real, some topics that can be very touchy. And sometimes people will go into a, a podcast like that thinking like, well, this better describe my exact experience and like every possible intersection of oppression. And if you don't mention all of that, like I'm about to tweet you. Yeah, because everybody like the way we start now is like about curse. This podcast contains it's like who the fuck cares? Like, really, people don't write us and say, like, you used explicit language without. Oh, you mean like me? You mean like trigger warning? Yeah, yeah. Trigger warning about cursing, because in case you have children in the car, which really if you've been listening to our show for one minute, don't listen to it with your kids in the car if you don't want to hear it. But that's not the problem. The problem is like that's not the way in which we offend people it's not by saying fuck and cunt it's by like you know not (laughs) fully this show does contain people's experience anyway Um, yeah so I if you can it's a little bit long the podcast is kind of long I feel like it could use a little more editing but if you can get through that I feel like it's a really worthwhile show give it a listen cool all right. I think that's that's our show. Thank you to our producer, Verilyn Williams, and our production assistant, Daniel Schrader. Please tweet us at, at Hannah Rosen, at Anna Holmes, and at C underscore Cotarucci, or you can just find my name on Twitter. Please subscribe on iTunes and email us at doublexgabfest at slate.com. For Anna and Hannah, I'm Christina Cotarucci at Slate. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.